Hello, everyone. This is Scott Fraser, and I have the privilege of teaching today's lesson for Cedar Fort Publishing series, Come Follow Me with David Ridges. I'm the author of three books published by Cedar Fort, Where Science Meets God, Angry with God, and Mentally Calm, Spiritually Connected. I am also a host of a podcast called Science and Scriptures, which can be found on Cedar Fort's website in the podcast section. Today, we will be discussing Doctrine and Covenants 135 to 136, the lesson for November 22nd to 28th, 2021. I am very pleased that I get to teach this lesson about the martyrdom of the prophet Joseph Smith and the revelation from the Lord to Brigham Young at Winter Quarters. Joseph's death signals the end of the first phase of the existence of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which occurred in the eastern United States. Section 136 comes to us as the saints are emigrating to Utah Valley and signals the beginning of the phase of the church in Utah. So if you want to follow along, please turn to Doctrine and Covenants 135. Now, I believe this is the first section of the Doctrine and Covenants not written by Joseph Smith. This announcement of Joseph's death was written by John Taylor. You may notice that John Taylor follows the writing style of many authors in the 1800s in that his sentences are very long. Books like A Tale of Two Cities, The Last of the Mohicans, and other classics from the 1800s have long sentences and long paragraphs. Brother Taylor's writing style is very different from Joseph's. Verse 7, the last verse in this section, is fully 72 words long. But Brother Taylor was a really good writer, too. His report of the death of Joseph and Hiram Smith is both poetic and expressive of the church's outrage at the cold-blooded killings of the prophet and his brother, who were in the custody of the state government at the time of the murders. In verse 2, Brother Taylor gives the specifics of the murders. You must remember that John Taylor was in the room, so his descriptions are accurate. He describes Hiram's death. He states, Hiram was shot first and fell calmly, exclaiming, I am a dead man. As an aside, I think I would have liked Hiram Smith very much. I picture him as being very calm and a collected man, making his effectiveness as a counselor to his brother especially notable. Hiram's statement that he was shot does not surprise me at all. He felt a bullet enter his body, and he knew it was a fatal wound. His last act was to inform his brother and friends of his condition, and he was still able to do so calmly. In verse 3, Brother Taylor, referring to himself in the third person, reports on himself and Willard Richards. Brother Taylor was shot four times, but recovered. Willard Richards ended up with a small nick on his ear, but otherwise was unharmed. After reporting the particulars of the martyrdom, John Taylor then makes a declaration about the prophet Joseph. He states, Joseph Smith, the prophet and seer of the Lord, has done more, save Jesus only, for the salvation of men in this world than any other man that has ever lived in it. This is a bold statement. One could make the case that the apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, came in second place to the Savior. We could make a case for Constantine, who was instrumental in establishing the Catholic Church, or Martin Luther, who founded the Lutheran Church, or John Wesley, who started the Methodist Church. Those three churches were, and still are, larger than the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It rather comes down to the question of if you believe in the restoration of the gospel after the great apostasy. If you do, then Brother Taylor is quite right in his conclusion. Jesus Christ established his gospel in the Holy Lands. Joseph Smith restored that gospel in the United States about 1,800 years later. They both laid the groundwork and leadership 
for their church before they were executed. In verse 4, Brother Taylor points out that both Hiram and Joseph knew they were going to die by going to Carthage jail. Joseph says so, twice actually. In verse 4, Joseph is quoted as saying, I am going like a lamb to the slaughter, but I am calm as a summer's morning. I have a conscience void of offense towards God and towards all men. I shall die innocent, and it shall yet be said of me, he was murdered in cold blood. We read on in verse 4, now referring to Hiram. The same morning, after Hiram had made ready to go, shall we say to the slaughter, yes, for so it was, he read the following paragraph, near the close of the twelfth chapter of Ether, in the Book of Mormon, and turned down the leaf upon it. The reference is referring to Ether 12, 36, and 38. In these three verses, Moroni interrupts his narration of the history of Ether and the Jaredites, and rather surprisingly, ends up talking about the Gentiles. The first time I read D&C 135, I thought it was highly appropriate that, in the normal course of his reading scriptures, Hiram would happen to be reading such a relevant verse. I now realize that conclusion was inaccurate. I now believe Hiram knew this verse, and, knowing he was going to die, turned to it for comfort. Hiram might have imagined that the Lord was speaking to him in verse 37, and he himself was speaking back in verse 38. As we read, And it came to pass that the Lord said unto me, If thou have not charity, it mattereth not unto thee. Thou hast been faithful, wherefore thy garments shall be made clean. And because thou hast seen thy weakness, thou shalt be made strong, even unto the sitting down in the place which I have prepared in the mansions of my father. Verse 38. And now I, Moroni, bid farewell unto the Gentiles, yea, and also unto my brethren whom I love, until we shall meet before the judgment seat of Christ, where all men shall know that my garments are not spotted with your blood. When John Taylor wrote these verses in section 135, he removed the name of Moroni, rather implying, I think, that Hiram is putting his own name into the scripture. In verse 7, Brother Taylor concludes his eulogy, using the phrase innocent blood several times. Let me read a few sections of this last verse of the section. And their innocent blood on the floor of Carthage jail is a broad seal affixed to Mormonism. Now, given the attention that the name of the church has received lately, I find this an interesting reference. Fortunately, I don't believe the church will change this section of our scriptures due to the church's more recent policies, as other parts of our country seem to be doing with their history. The next extracted verse, that cannot be rejected by any court on earth and their innocent blood on the escutcheon of the state of Illinois. An escutcheon is a coat of arms. Generally, we think of Missouri as the site of most of the church violence and discrimination. But Joseph and Hiram's executions were allowed in and by the state of Illinois. It was Illinois' responsibility to protect the Smith brothers, as John Taylor goes on to explain. With the broken faith of the state, as pledged by the governor, is a witness to the truth of the everlasting gospel, that all the world cannot impeach, and their innocent blood on the banner of liberty and on the Magna Carta of the United States. Now, the Magna Carta is one of the most important documents in history, as it established the principle that everyone is subject to the law, even a king, and guarantees the rights of individuals, the right to justice, and the right to a fair trial. The principles of the Magna Carta are written into our Constitution, but the United States does not have its own Magna Carta. John Taylor is not referring to a specific document. He is referring to the principles of the Magna Carta that are part of the law of the United States. Obviously, those principles were shattered in the martyrdom of Joseph and Hiram. 
Next extract. With the innocent blood of all the martyrs under the altar that John saw. This refers to Revelation 6-9, where John sees the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Now let's move on to Doctrine and Covenants section 136, though I do reserve the right to return to section 135 in a few minutes. After the deaths of Hiram and Joseph, the saints had to endure escalating persecutions for a full year and a half. Persecutions and threats to the saints were becoming more violent. Finally, the saints decided to leave Nauvoo in February of 1846. Now, section 136 is a revelation given to Brigham Young in winter quarters. Verses 1 through 17 talk about how the pioneers were to organize themselves into companies. Now, I have heard comments in Sunday school class over the years that the Lord's kingdom is a house of order and organization, and that this section reflects that principle. Well, not quite. The revelation was given in winter quarters, not Nauvoo. It was given in January of 1847, though the saints started leaving Nauvoo in February of 1846, about 11 months before. Brigham and a host of pioneers had left Nauvoo in winter temperatures so they could cross the frozen Mississippi River. It was a relatively sudden decision to leave. Though Brigham tried to organize the exodus as best he could on short notice, most of the saints had to slog through the entire length of Iowa. Some families were not prepared for the trek and suffered significantly. Brigham Young would eventually become known as the American Moses and the colonizer of the American West. But this was his first such effort, and he was struggling to organize the thousands of saints who were making the 1,200-mile trip from Nauvoo to Salt Lake City. It seems the Lord gave Brigham this section to both help him to organize the trek and set some ground rules for the trip. There would be future problems with other pioneer crossings, of course. Brigham Young would later be frustrated by the infamous Willie and Martin handcart companies that left winter quarters much later in the year than they should have. Now, verses 17 through 33 are basic instructions for the saints. This seems like a strange time to be reviewing simple instructions about how the members of his church were to interact with one another. But the Lord seems to be giving instructions to his saints, knowing that the saints were leaving their old societal structure and entering an entirely new phase of life. The behaviors that worked in Nauvoo and Kirtland weren't going to work on the Pioneer Trail or in Utah. Unlike before, the saints were on their own, both on the trail and in Utah. A few verses that illustrate this new structure are as follows. In verse 22 we read, I am he who led the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, and my arm is stretched out in the last days, to save my people Israel. This is obviously a reference to another exodus that the Lord oversaw, as Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt. The children of Israel had to learn new ways of life as well, and we can read about some of those problems in the book of Exodus. Verse 24, Cease drunkenness, and let your words tend to edifying one another. Now remember, the word of wisdom is still more of a recommendation than a commandment at this point. Under stress, many men turn to alcohol, something the Lord is trying to prevent. Verse 28, If thou art merry, praise the Lord with singing, with music, with dancing, and with a prayer of praise and thanksgiving. Now this pretty well describes the evening's entertainment for many wagon trains as they cross the prairies. Now verses 34 to 39 review the martyrdom of Joseph Smith. I would like to review those scriptures and a few more and dig a little deeper into the martyrdom of Joseph Smith. Specifically, I would like to try to propose an answer to the question, 
Why did Joseph Smith have to die? Doctrine and Covenants 135.1 says that Joseph and Hiram died to seal the testimony of this book, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Book of Mormon. In Doctrine and Covenants 136.39, it says that Joseph died that he should seal his testimony with his blood, that he might be honored and the wicked might be condemned. I've never understood the phrase, seal his testimony with his blood. It's very poetic, but the phrase doesn't make sense. Does a person's beliefs become more believable because that person dies for them? There have been a lot of people who have died for crazy theories. Their deaths don't make those theories more plausible. If this was a live Sunday school class, we could have a lively discussion about this proposal. But since this is a virtual class, I'm going to present my conclusions to you, sadly without discussion. I hope it gives you something to think about in this coming week. I want to make a comparison between the deaths of Jesus Christ and Joseph Smith. Now, first we must note that Jesus Christ died for several important reasons besides carrying out the atonement. One of these reasons is eerily similar to a reason for which I believe Joseph had to die. The Savior came to earth during the reign of the Roman Empire, which the scriptures call the meridian of time. However, there is really no explanation in the scriptures as to why Jesus needed to make his earthly appearance when he did. In his book, Jesus the Christ, James E. Talmadge explains, The Savior's advent was pre-appointed. The long history of the Israelite nation had unfolded a succession of events that found a relative culmination in the earthly mission of the Messiah. The religion of the time was a matter of ceremony and formality, of ritual and performance, It had lost the very spirit of worship, and the true conception of the relationship between Israel and Israel's God was but a dream of the past. In other words, by the time of the Savior's birth, all spiritual aspects of the religion of the Jews of the Holy Land had been lost. The time had arrived for mankind to do away with the Mosaic Law and usher in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. However, the Jews of the Holy Land were still God's chosen people, and God remembers His covenants. Because they were the covenant people, it seems that the gospel of Jesus Christ had to be offered to Abraham's children first, before the Gentiles. You will remember that the Savior came to teach the gospel to the Jews, not the Gentiles. Thus, when a Canaanite woman approached him to heal her daughter, he explained that concept to her. In Matthew 22 we read, And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coasts, and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meet to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord. Yet the dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. The Lord was impressed by this woman's faith, and he healed her daughter. But this was a very rare exception to his rule. The Savior's new doctrine and commandments were a significant departure from the Mosaic law. Doing all he could, Jesus petitioned the children of Abraham to recognize him as the promised Savior and to accept his new gospel. To prove he was their Redeemer, Jesus Christ showed them miracles that far exceeded anything done since the days of Moses. A few open-minded Jewish people did join the church, but the Jewish leadership of Jerusalem, Sadducees, Pharisees, priests, and scribes, 
rejected the new religion to the point of conspiring and campaigning to have the Savior killed. The chosen people of God rejected God's plan. In doing so, I believe the Jewish people lost their chosen people status. Only after the crucifixion and resurrection was the gospel taken to the Gentiles, who would soon come to far outnumber the Jewish converts in the Church of Jesus Christ. So, who are the chosen people of the Lord today? Now, as I just noted, one might say the Gentiles, from what we read in the New Testament. But let's return to Ether chapter 12, which Hiram bookmarked on his way to the Carthage jail. We read in verse 33, Wherefore, I know by this thing which thou hast said, that if the Gentiles have not charity, because of our weakness, that thou wilt prove them, and take away their talent, yea, even that which they have received, and give unto them who shall have more abundantly. And now I, Moroni, bid farewell unto the Gentiles, yea, and also unto my brethren, whom I love, until we shall meet before the judgment seat of Christ, where all men shall know that my garments are not spotted with your blood. Moroni does not sound very optimistic about the Gentiles. He says that if the Gentiles don't have charity, the Lord will take away their talent and give it unto them who shall have more abundantly. This refers, of course, to the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Regarding their treatment of the restored church, the Gentiles were certainly not charitable. So might the chosen people of the Lord be the citizens of the United States? We are taught in the Book of Mormon that the New World, including the United States, was a chosen land and a land of promise. Time and again we read scriptures similar to this one from 1 Nephi 2.20. And inasmuch as ye shall keep my commandments, ye shall prosper, and shall be led to the land of promise, yea, even a land which I have prepared for you, yea, a land which is choice above all other lands. But now let us return to Doctrine and Covenants 136 and read verses 34 to 36. This section was given a year and a half after the martyrdom of Joseph and Hiram, and the Lord is still angry. He says, Thy brethren have rejected you and your testimony, even the nation that has driven you out. And now cometh the day of their calamity, even the days of sorrow, like a woman that is taken in travail, and their sorrow shall be great, unless they speedily repent, yea, very speedily. For they killed the prophets, and them that were sent unto them, and they have shed innocent blood, which crieth from the ground against them. Many of the political leadership of the United States were guilty of abetting the murder of Joseph Smith. Joseph met with President Martin Van Buren, who reportedly stated, Your cause is just, but I can do nothing for you. The church sent petitions to Congress to no avail. The governor of Illinois, Thomas Ford, had promised that Joseph Smith would be protected from harm if he surrendered to authorities at Carthage Jail. Mobs in Missouri tormented and killed the saints who lived there. Mobs continued to harass the saints in Nauvoo until they finally fled the state. But it was the execution of Joseph and Hiram which sealed the fate of the United States. There is no indication that the people of the nation speedily repented, as the Lord said they must. In 3 Nephi chapter 16, the Savior is visiting the Nephites. He tells them, as we can read today, about the Gentiles. Starting with verse 10, And thus commandeth the Father that I should say unto you, at that day when the Gentiles shall sin against my gospel, and shall reject the fullness of my gospel, and shall be lifted up in the pride of their hearts above all nations, and above all the people of the whole earth, and shall be filled with all manner of lyings and of deceits, and of mischiefs, and all manner of hypocrisy, and murders, and priestcrafts, and whoredoms, and of secret abominations, and if they shall do all those things, 
and shall reject the fullness of my gospel, behold, saith the Father, I will bring the fullness of my gospel from among them. I realize that many people still think that the day when the Gentiles shall reject the fullness of the gospel will be in the days just prior to the second coming. However, I believe that the moment when the Gentiles rejected the fullness of the gospel was when they killed Joseph Smith. Continuing with the Savior's explanation to the Nephites, we read, And then will I remember my covenant, which I have made unto my people, O house of Israel, and I will bring my gospel unto them. And I will show unto thee, O house of Israel, that the Gentiles shall not have power over you, but I will remember my covenant unto you, O house of Israel, and ye shall come unto the knowledge of the fullness of my gospel. But if the Gentiles will repent and return unto me, saith the Father, behold, they shall be numbered among my people, O house of Israel. These verses declare that the house of Israel will be made up of members of the original house of Israel who come into a knowledge of the fullness of the gospel, and of Gentiles who repent and return unto the Father. My conclusion, whether the Gentiles, or more specifically the citizens of the United States, had ever been the chosen people, They lost that designation when they killed the prophet Joseph. When Jesus died, the Jews lost their designation as the chosen people. When Joseph died, the Gentiles lost their designation of the chosen people. In both cases, the rejection had to include killing the Savior or prophet sent to them because of the severity of the punishment, losing the honor of being the Lord's chosen people. The rejection had to include the death of the Lord's anointed. There may be other reasons Joseph Smith had to die. We are simply not told. But if Joseph Smith's life is second only to Jesus Christ in helping men to find salvation, then my proposal that his death would be second only to the Savior's insignificance does not seem illogical. I think Joseph Smith's death was an event that was much more important than we realize and that changed a lot of things of which we are not aware. In verse 37, the Lord refers to the line of prophets he had called over the centuries and now includes Joseph Smith. Reading from Doctrine and Covenants, section 136, verse 39, which is speaking of Joseph Smith. Many have marveled because of his death, but it was needful that he should seal his testimony with his blood, that he might be honored and the wicked might be condemned. I think verse 39 is an understatement. Many have marveled because of his death. I'm sure every Latter-day Saint of the time marveled greatly. If the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was the true Church of Jesus Christ, then how could he have allowed the death of the president, prophet, and leader of the Church? The Church was in danger of being destroyed by the loss of their leader. There had to be a really good reason that the Lord allowed Joseph to be killed. This is the only such reason I can think of. The chosen people of the Lord are now the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We have lots of Gentiles in the church. From the original house of Israel, we have a few descendants of Lehi's line and a few Jewish converts from Judah's line. Together, we make up the present-day house of Israel. Let me read section 136, verse 22 again, with this conclusion in mind. I am he who led the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, and my arm is stretched out in the last days to save my people Israel. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is now Israel. We are now the Lord's covenant people in several different ways. The fullness of the gospel resides within our church. We are a covenant-making people. New church members make covenants every day in our chapels upon their baptism. We renew those covenants every Sunday in our sacrament meetings. Church members then make more covenants in our temples throughout the world. As church members, 
We have responsibilities above and beyond those of other people around us. We have made covenants that non-members have not, and we are the covenant people. The last verse of section 136 warns us to not allow what happened to the Gentiles as a people to happen to the saints. It reads as follows, with me adding emphasis where I think it should be added. Be diligent in keeping all my commandments, lest judgments come upon you, and your faith fail you, and your enemies triumph over you. This is a good verse to end our study of sections 135 and 136. They are inspiring documents, which can teach us a lot. I hope I have done them justice, and I hope you've learned a little something. Thanks for listening. Next week's lesson is Doctrine and Covenants, sections 137 and 138, so you can prepare. This is Scott Fraser, guest teacher for David Ridges, in Cedar Fort Publishing's podcast series, Come Follow Me with David Ridges. Take care and have a wonderful week.